You're listening to Taxpayers Australia's news and insights podcast, Tax Wrap. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Tax Wrap, uh, episode 128. I'm Steve Burdham, joined by Letty. Hello, Letty, again. Hi, Steve. And today we have a special guest, Mr. Simon Dorovich. Simon, welcome. Hi, uh, thank, thanks for having me. Now, Simon's from A&A Tax Legal Consulting. Um, now, Simon's come in here at our request, and he's kindly given his time to help us out a little bit, because... Leading up to tax time, we always get a bit of a rush on our helpline calls, and members will know that there's a certain amount of helpline calls that you can access and get our tax technical experts to help you out with. One of the most popular topics every year seems to be the small business CGT concessions, and this year's no different. Yeah, that's correct, Steve. Mm. And as usual, uh, our members really want to know, do my clients qualify in the first place? And then even if they do, can they actually access one of the specific four concessions. That's a, that's a thing that Simon's going to answer for us because, uh, Simon, you've been working in this area for many years and you're at the coalface, as it were. Yes, so um, Simon's very kindly written an article for us in the June edition of The Taxpayer, which by the time our listeners are hearing this podcast, right. hopefully they'll have in their hot little hands or <laughs> in the inbox, really. And Simon's really given us 11 very practical tips to think about when dealing with these small business CCT concessions. So where are we at? What would be the first step, Sam? What's the, what's, where do you go to in the initial stages? Well, I think the first step is when you first uh, meet and uh, acquire the client. Uh, often uh, that's, that client has been in business already for, for many years and has a history of, uh, of using their assets and uh, of perhaps even previously accessing the uh, small business CGT concessions. Uh, and it's important to, to gather information. Uh, for example, have they accessed the $500,000 uh, lifetime limit uh, retirement exemption? And, and if so, how much have they used? Uh, have the assets that are in their business always been active assets? Uh, does their company or trust have a significant individual? Has, has that always been the case? Because the time uh, to gather that information uh, it's probably never going to be easier than at that point uh, rather than making it harder for yourself uh, yeah. down the track. Right, I said. Of course, if it's a new business, there's no questions, but if it's an existing business coming to you, then you need to find these things out. Absolutely right. That's a very wise tip, and it is really good that that's actually tip number one, Simon, because as you're saying, you know, when your client first comes on board, that's the easiest time to ask for information, not only from them, but also from their previous accountants, because a lot of these clients themselves might not be tax specialists, which is why we they engage accountants and tax agents to do this work for them. And you'd rather be reading their old accountant or writing them a letter to ask for this sort of information mm. rather than 60s down the track when they sell the asset. <laughs> That's true. Okay. Now, another key tip in Simon's article is about the maximum net asset value test. Simon, could you run through what you think uh, tax practitioners should, should really look out for here? Uh, well, the maximum net asset value test is, of course, the, the $6 million test uh, that looks at uh, the market value of the taxpayer's assets, less... Uh, liabilities relating to those assets and certain provisions. Uh, and one thing that s some clients are not aware of is that all CGT assets, uh, are, if not otherwise excluded, uh, are counted towards those tests. So, for example, uh, that would include as assets that are taxed under different provisions, trading stock or depreciation, uh, pre-CGT assets, those acquired before September 1985. Uh, these may not uh, lead to a capital gain uh, 
uh, on disposal, but they still are CGT assets. Mm. Uh, so a CGT asset is really defined very broadly. It's it's any kind of property uh, or a legal or equitable right that, that isn't property. So uh, there's a great deal of assets that fall into those two categories. I, I suppose pre-CGT asset would have to be building, I assume. It's uh, been so long ago now. Yeah. 85, but still. It could be some goodwill as well for a long-standing family business, perhaps. Oh, yeah, that's true. true. Yeah, yeah. yeah, And that's definitely a very, very hot tip to take away because often when we think about CGT, and I think us practitioners are also very guilty of this as well, we think about CGT in the context of, oh, what what's going to be taxable? Mm. But Simon's absolutely correct in saying that the test itself is about CGT assets, not about what would be included in the tax return, no. but about whether the asset itself qualifies as a CGT asset. Now, practically all business assets will be CGT assets. It's just that some of them, like Simon was saying, is taxed under some other regimes, and yep. therefore those gains and losses would not be included. And they're just under sitting CGT. there quietly until something triggers a, a value of them, I suppose. Now, you've got a note here about uh, holiday homes and main residences. How is that all involved? Uh, well, I said before that uh, CGT assets are included in this $6 million test unless otherwise excluded. Uh, and one of the exclusions is for assets that are used, uh, being used solely for the personal use and enjoyment of the individual uh, or their affiliate. Uh, so a common example of that sort of asset would be a holiday home. Uh, now, there's differing interpretations about when such a holiday home would be used uh, solely for the personal use and enjoyment. Uh, the ATO takes a very, very strict interpretation uh, on that. Uh, there's a, an ATO ID uh, 2011-37 uh, where they say that any private use, uh, sorry, any non-private use uh, of the asset at any stage of the ownership period would be enough to uh, prevent it from being disregarded, uh, which is really quite a quite a harsh interpretation. The, the AAT, uh, in a case uh, called Altnot, uh, they took uh, a more concessional approach, though they still ultimately sided with the ATO against the taxpayer in that case. Uh, the ATO said, well look to the time surrounding the CGT event uh, and in that time surrounding rather than the entire ownership period uh, was it being used solely for the personal use and enjoyment of the individual uh, or perhaps was it being rented out? Mm. Did, the, did that case change the ATO's approach then? If they uh, started in favour of the ATO anyway but they, you said they seemed to take a more concessional approach. Did that change things for the rest of us? No, no, it didn't. The The ATO came out with a decision impact statement oh. uh, following that case and uh, didn't appear to uh, adjust their views uh, at all and, and haven't uh, updated the uh, ID that I referred to earlier. Mm. Yeah, I suppose with these things you always have to take it on a case-by-case, -case, asset asset-by-asset basis as well. Mm. So Steve, you're mansioning by the beach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're just keeping it empty 11 months of the year and you just use it during your Christmas holidays mm. and you suddenly decide you'd like to rent it out during the school holidays for the other nine months of the year or yep. what have you, yep. then you'd have to have a very good think about whether that Mansion by the Beach needs to be included in your the asset value test. Oh gosh, it might take me over the cap and the threshold and all the rest <laughs> of it. Who mm. knows? Well, 
Now, the, the ATO isn't, they don't always play the bad guy. There, there is another ruling where uh, they have taken a, a, a much more generous approach. Uh, and that's where, uh, say, a holiday home again, for example, uh, the owner allows uh, friends or family to, to stay there uh, rent-free. Okay. Uh, so that, on a strict interpretation of the law, is, of course, not use uh, of the individual, uh, it's use of their friends or family. Yep. Uh, but the ATO will accept that as long as rent is not being paid to the owner uh, or to the individual, right. uh, that it can still be a disregarded asset. Okay, so if you're generous and let someone use it, it's you're okay? Yeah, okay. E- even, even if uh, you ask them to cover some costs, for example, for... Uh, utilities. Oh, like running costs of things. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So it looks like we've got holiday sorted, Steve. Oh, we'll right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> rent free at your, holiday, uh, your beach mansion. There's no rent, but there's, uh, yeah, cleaning and well, could be right to get the cleaning done. <laughs> That's right. So, Simon, I think that um, the, our next key tip is going to be about t- timing and identifying the relevant CTT event. Why is that so important? Well, for a number of reasons, Letty. Uh, First of all, for example, the maximum net asset value test is applied just before the CGT event. Uh, So you would need to determine, well, what is the CGT event uh, and when did it occur? Uh, So the the CGT event, uh, it can sometimes multiple uh, events may apply, and if that's the case, the the rule is generally that the most specific CGT event applies. That's right, and not all CGT events are deemed to happen at the same time either. So you've got case uh, Healy. Could you tell us what's the practical application of that? Well, Healy was the case where the taxpayer argued that CGT event A1 applied, that's uh, disposal of a CGT asset, uh, but the ATO uh, said that instead it was actually CGT event E2, uh, which is when a, an asset is transferred to a trust. Uh, and the the AAT sided with the ATO in that case. They said E2 is the more specific event. Uh, the result for the taxpayer being that the time of the CGT event was brought forward uh, and they no longer... Uh, satisfied the 12-month requirement <sighs> of getting the general CGT discount. So, so Simon, sometimes in uh, in the CGT offence, it's not as plain vanilla as I hand over money to you and you give the assets to me straight away. Sometimes there's quite a process with heaps of paperwork. So can you tell us what, what are the difficulties with that? Uh, well, sometimes the, the, a heads of agreement, for example... Uh, can be negotiated before the final contract is signed. Uh, There was a case by the name of Confidential where uh, the taxpayers entered into a a heads of agreement and then uh, undertook a uh, a due diligence process that lasted many months and and eventually the parties did uh, sign a contract and and agree to the the sale Uh, and they were of the opinion that the CGT event was when the contract was entered into, which is generally the case mm. for uh, event A1 when there is a contract. Yep, yep. Uh, but the, the AAT found that, in fact, the heads of agreement uh, was a binding agreement that contained all the, the necessary uh, 
terms and conditions of a contract and that the taxpayers effectively had agreed to be bound at that point in time. Uh, and so the timing of CGT event A1 uh, was when the heads of agreement was entered into. I see. So the timing again. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and that uh, affected the uh, maximum net asset value test. The, oh. the taxpayers uh, didn't satisfy it at that earlier point in time yep. and uh, were therefore unable to access the small business CGT concessions. Yeah. So the lesson learned from that is really it's not the legal form of the agreement or the paperwork and it's not the title of the paperwork, it's really whether it itself constitutes enough of a contractual agreement. All right, I, th um, I understand, um, I was reading a little bit about uh, in your story, Simon, that certain assets are specifically excluded from being an active asset and, and that um, such as, well, a taxpayer deriving rent. We were talking before about a tax, you know, a person uh, renting out their holiday house or a room or whatever. Um, is it always the case that such assets are excluded from these rules? Uh, well, an asset whose uh, whose main use is to derive rent uh, cannot be an active asset. But uh, of course, the a question is whether or not the income being derived by the asset is rent. Uh, so the the ATO has a, a determination uh, TD two thousand and six slash seventy eight that actually looks into this question, uh, and the the key. A determining factor is whether or not the occupier has uh, an exclusive right to possession. So, for example, I uh, lease my apartment and uh, just last week I uh, had an inspection. But uh, outside of those yearly inspections, uh, I can uh, have the quiet enjoyment of my property without worrying about the landlord popping in every, yeah, yeah. Uh, every few days. <laughs> Uh, in contrast to that, if I was staying at a hotel, uh, oh, yeah. notwithstanding a, a do not disturb sign, <laughs> uh, the, the management of the hotel uh, do have the right to... Uh, to um, Knock on the door and ask what all that noise was. Or <laughs> exactly right, yes. <laughs> yeah, and suppose the key test in the uh, tax determination is really whether the person occupying the premises is a tenant who's paying rent or whether they are some sort of lodger border with a license to occupy. Mm. That's really the key test that okay. they look at. And people can read about that. Yeah. What was it, 2006-78? That's right. right. And certainly the question of is it even rent in the first place is certainly one question. The other question is if it was rent, was the property mainly used to derive rent? So, Simon, if you were to own a five-storey building and you rent out the top floor to an unrelated third party, but you use the other four floors to actively carry on your business, would it be fair to say that it probably wouldn't be considered to be mainly used to derive rent and therefore that building may very well pass the test? Because you're in business, you mean? Okay. Because it's not being mainly used to derive rent. Oh, of course. That's right. So what's uh, the word mainly? You, you look both to the uh, area of the property that's being used to derive rent and being used for other purposes, uh, and also for the, at the use of that property over time. Uh, perhaps it was mm. being used to derive rent only for a minority of the ownership period. Right. Uh, and a, another area of uh, confusion is there are uh, some cases where a taxpayer can be in the business of deriving rent. Uh, for example, maybe they own a large portfolio of 
of rental properties and they're quite active in, in managing those properties. Uh, the courts have sometimes found that that constitutes a business, right. okay. but it still is a business of deriving rent. And so those properties uh, would be prevented from being active assets. Okay, I see. Yeah, right. So, so that's five really hot tips to take away from this podcast. To read the other six, make sure you have a look at the June edition of The Taxpayer. Okay. That's, uh, as I said, so many points to keep in mind and we need people like Simon to keep us on track. Uh, once again, I remind you of Simon Dorovich, who's come in to, to share his wisdom from A&A Tax Legal Consulting. Thanks very much again, Simon. It's been my pleasure. Happy thanks for having me. And thanks again, Letty. Thank you. Goodbye, listeners. See you next week.